All right, so we are in 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to try to cover chapters 12 through 14. And just by way of review, uh, we started with King David. King David and God had a covenant. We talked about this. This is one of the key facts of the entire Old Testament leading up to the birth of Jesus is that God told David, I will build you a house and one of your sons will always stand before me. You will, you will have a dynasty that will never end. That, of course, was ultimately fulfilled in the birth and the reign of Jesus Christ. But David was succeeded by his son Solomon. Last week, we looked at Solomon's reign. We looked at the rise and fall of Solomon. And we looked at how even though God blessed him with not only the wisdom that he asked for at Gibeon, but uh, things he didn't ask for, like incredible wealth and glory and power and peace, God gave him all these great things, and yet at some point in his middle years, he started to turn away from God. Never turned completely away, but like so many of us, his heart became divided. He still believed in God, he still worshipped, he still prayed, but he also had his idols over here. In, in Solomon's case, the idolatry sprang from his character defect of, of his love of foreign women. And whether that, was, uh, whether that was a lustful issue or whether that was a matter of political power, I think it was both. Either way, it was a character flaw. And what we discovered last week was it, it ended up with, in the immediate aftermath of Solomon's life, he was going to lose his kingdom. His son would lose the kingdom. The God, would, God promised, I won't tear the whole kingdom away from you. I will allow you to keep one of the tribes. That means there would be two tribes that the, the house of David would rule because they already ruled the house of Judah, their own, and then the tribe of Benjamin would stay with them. So it would be a southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, and then the northern ten tribes known as Israel. Not only that, what we discovered last week was Solomon's character defect undid all the good that he did as king because his pattern, his his pattern of destructiveness in introducing that kind of idolatry to the people of Israel ended up undoing any good he did. Even the temple was destroyed by his idolatry in the end. So it, it just is a lesson to us that, like we said last week, sin always takes you farther than you want to go, leaves you longer you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. You have to deal with the, the sins in your life before they deal with you. Now, late in his life, God, in his mercy, raised up enemies to Solomon to try to wake him up, to try to get him to repent. It didn't work. But one of the enemies that he raised up was a man named Jeroboam. We're going to learn about him in more detail tonight. Uh, Jeroboam, the way, where we left him was he had led an unsuccessful revolt against Solomon, and then he fled to Egypt where the king uh, gave him shelter. Now, we're going to pick up the story of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And I know, I know it's confusing. There's Rehoboam and there's Jeroboam, but you'll manage, okay? Uh, the story starts with him being installed as king uh, in the city of Shechem. Shechem was an ancient city. Uh, it was notable for at least two reasons. When Abraham first came down from Ur, God told him, go to the land of Canaan. He stopped in Shechem, and that's where God met him and reaffirmed the covenant and said, look at the stars in the sky. There will be as many uh, offspring of you as there are stars in the sky. And the other thing that happened in Shechem, you might remember this, 
Joshua, after he had done uh, the Lord's will and had conquered the land, he gathered the people of Israel at Shechem and he said his famous words, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this is sort of like a coronation of a king, like we saw with Prince Charles becoming King Charles a couple of years ago in England. So that's what this is intended to be. It turned into something unexpectedly different. So chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, now let me just stop and say, if you're Rehoboam and you look out on the day of your coronation and you see a a big group of people coming up, with the guy at the head of the group who once revolted against your father, you're already a little bit on edge. You're already thinking, this is not going to be good. They didn't come to offer me tribute. But it says, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Now having said what I said about who Jeroboam was, I think you and I would agree that's an entirely reasonable request. Solomon, uh, he had all these building plans and all these projects he constantly had going. So there were always, there was always forced labor being extracted from Israel. Boys and men were being pulled off their family farms to go and work for the king for several months and then they could go home. But what that meant was the family farm suffered so Solomon could build another tower, another building, another city. And so the people had had enough of it, especially since A lot of them lived up north in the northern part of the country. The only time they ever went to Jerusalem was for Passover or the Feast of Booths or, or, uh, and I can't remember the other feast, but there were three feasts in the year that the Israelites went down for. uh, and, And most Israelites couldn't afford to even go down for all three of those. So your son, your dad, your husband was going and was away from the farm for months so that there would be a building that you might see a handful of times in your lifetime. So they'd had it. And by the way, Jeroboam, before he revolted against Solomon, his job was to be the taskmaster of his people, Ephraim. He had been the one that went out into his tribe and said, okay, you, 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 and you come with me to Jerusalem. You're going to work for the king. So he was very familiar with the complaints of the people. So that's their request. We've done enough. There's enough buildings. There's enough cities. Give us a break now. All right, so verse 5. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer to them, then they will be your servants forever. Now, if the story ended there, And we were left to assume that Rehoboam had taken what sounds like very wise advice. This would be a very different story. But that's not what happens. Verse 8 says, But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Now, I don't know because Scripture doesn't say. But I have to think that those young men who had grown up with him were at least in part some of the other people who were born in Solomon's harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Maybe half-brothers, maybe some that 
weren't even blood related to him, but he had grown up alongside them. These were young guys who'd grown up in the lap of luxury. They didn't have the seasoned experience of those old, those old counselors. And their, their advice is going to sound a lot like you would expect from a, young, uh, a group of young punks. Uh, verse, eight, or verse 9, And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus, you'll, thus you shall speak to the people who say to you, My, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. The, the idea of my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, that's, that's just a way of saying I'm, I'm a big guy. You thought my daddy was big. I, I, I am a truly big man. Does that sound like somebody who is secure in himself? Bullies are never secure in themselves. They always have something to prove, and that's what Rehoboam proves to be. And when he promises to discipline them with scorpions, that, there's a lot of debate about that among uh, biblical scholars. They'll say, well, maybe he's talking about a specific kind of whip, uh, an especially hard kind of whip. Or maybe he's really saying, I'm going to tie you down and put you know, bugs from the desert on you. But either way, he is threatening them. He's doing the exact opposite of the advice that he was given by the wise men who advised his father. Just think how far it would have gone if he'd had just a little bit of humility and just a little bit of empathy. Unfortunately, for insecure people, and particularly insecure men, if I can be that bold, humility and empathy are mistaken for weakness. And we're afraid to show it because we're afraid that'll mean that people will walk all over us and we won't get the, the respect we deserve and, and then our lives will be miserable when if... If Rehoboam had simply said, you know, if I was in their shoes, I'd probably want a little break too. If he would have answered them kindly, maybe even met them halfway, everything would have been different. And so what he does here ends up dividing the kingdom. In fact, uh, from this point on, when you read the word Israel in the book of 1st or 2nd Kings, that's not referring to the house of David. That's referring to the northern kingdom. Israel uh, is the, those ten tribes that are separated from David's house. David now rules over Judah, a much smaller and weaker kingdom in the south. Now, I will say this for Rehoboam. He does one good thing in this story, and we're not going to read this, but I'll tell you about it. As soon as the ten tribes secede from him, and I use that word intentionally, he musters an army of 180,000 men from Judah and Benjamin and is ready to go to war to bring the, bring the northern tribes back into the Union, right? Just like the Civil War in our country, except God stops him and He says, listen, I made them leave you. I, I tore them away from you myself. If you fight them, you're going to be fighting me. And to his credit, Rehoboam listens this time to the prophet Shemaiah and he calls off the troops and he just lives with his mistake. So let's pick up the story with Jeroboam up north in the nation of Israel, this new king. Verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. 
If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Does that sound familiar to you? It's, it's baffling to us thousands of years later that Jeroboam didn't see what he was doing, that it was exactly what the Israelites had done in the wilderness and, and crafting a, a golden calf and saying, this is our God who got us out of Egypt and, and he's making the same mistake again. And that's not even all. He also created his own priesthood. God had said, uh, all your priests will come from the line of, from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron. He says, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to pick our own priests. And he creates his own holidays, his own high holy days. Okay, these are the days when you will go and worship at either the temple in Bethel or the temple in Dan in the northern part of our country. And, and you and I may say, this is just a sign, by the way, of, of our individualism because we're Americans. You and I may say, well, that's okay. I mean, we worship wherever we want to also. It wasn't that way in Israel. God had made very specific commands. Who the priests were, how the offerings were to be offered and sacrifices were to be sacrificed, what days you feasted and fasted, and where it was all to take place. There was no innovation. There was no, put it this way, there was no independent Baptist church of Jerusalem, okay? That, that didn't happen. There was no non-denominational church of Jericho. That did not happen. It, it was never intended to be that way in Israelite worship. So, you, may, you and I may look at that and just shake our heads, but for just a second, put yourself in Jeroboam's shoes. From a political standpoint, his decision made perfect sense. From a political standpoint, he's sitting there saying, three times a year, my people are going to travel down to Jerusalem. They're going to see the temple. They're going to they're see those priests and all their finery offering the sacrifices. They're going to sing the songs. They're going to remember, this is who we are. And they're going to say, why did we ever leave? Let's move back. Let's, let's, let's go live near the temple like holy people do. And he said, I don't want that. I don't want to lose my people. So let's just give them our own version of things. I mean, we'll call it, we'll call it the same God. We'll just, we'll just have it up here. We'll have it in a place that's convenient for us. We'll tell them how to do things so that they can feel like they're worshiping God, but still stay loyal to me. From a political standpoint, that makes complete sense. You know what, the old, what they said about the Roman Empire and, and religion? They said to the Romans, all religions were equally false and equally useful. And that's how Jeroboam was operating. He was, he was saying, listen, no, this is none of my business. I'm not a priest. I just know what's good for me politically. But everything he did was in direct disobedience to God's will. And the tragedy of this, think about what a great story it would have been if Jeroboam had done what God said. Because you might rec recall, if you were with us last week, God made a promise to Jeroboam through the prophet Abijah or Ahijah that if you'll obey me and your children obey me, I'll build you a house just like the house of David that will never end. And here in the first generation, Jeroboam says, nah, I'm going to do things my way. What a great story it would have been. A man who had been a servant is now a king and has a dynasty that lasts forever. But he wouldn't do it. He had to do things his own way. 
And as a result, I hate to spoil the ending of the story for you, but the northern kingdom is going to end up having nine different dynasties. For all its problems, Judah has one to the very end. It's always the house of David, but the, house, the northern kingdom will have nine different kingdoms, nine different dynasties. There's going to be assassinations, there's going to be uh, plots, there's going to be invasions, and in the end, their whole nation will be wiped out. And one thing you'll read, if you read First and Second Kings, you'll read this refrain, every single time a new king of Israel is introduced, it'll say, he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin. They never once had a good king. The northern kingdom never once had a good king. And it started with Jeroboam. All right, chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. So out of the house of David, this prophet, we don't know his name, comes up north. This is a sign of the mercy and grace of God. It, it kills me when people say, well, you know, the God of the New Testament's a God of grace. The God of the Old Testament's a God of judgment. It's the same God. <laughs> it's harder to see in the New Testament because that's where, I mean, in the Old Testament, because then the New is where we finally get the gospel. But you see over and over again, God appealing to his people. And this is one of those cases. Jeroboam has spat in the face of God for years. And instead of just wiping him out like a bug on a windshield, he sends a prophet to say, hey, here's what's going to happen unless you turn around. So here's what happens. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Now, if anything's going to make you repent, I think that ought to do, Right? That is a pretty sure sign that you have totally messed up. You have, you have gotten on the bad side of the one true God. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. I, I love this. In my head, and of course we can't hear tone of voice in, in literature, but in my head it's very theatrical. It's seize him, and then it's, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Is God not gracious? God gives this king a chance to be redeemed. You understand, if you read the Old Testament, you understand that God's prophecies are almost always conditional. Think about, think about the story of Jonah, which I'm planning to preach on in a few weeks. But uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, 40 days and, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And Nineveh isn't destroyed. Why? Because the people repent. God didn't change his mind. God said, this is what's going to happen unless you repent. And they repented. I think this is the same case here. This whole place is going to... I mean, Jeremiah... The, the prophet even names the king who's going to come along someday, a man who hasn't 
won't be born for hundreds of years. He says, someday a guy named Josiah is going to be here and he's going to tear down this altar and he's going to destroy everything you've done. So repent now so none of this has to happen. And then heals the king. Now, Jeroboam's response is, well, hey, prophet, why don't you stick around with me for a while? Let's have dinner together. It's it's sort of a way of meeting him halfway and saying, you know, I, I'm not ready to repent yet, but I, I'm impressed enough with you that I want to be nice to you. And the prophet says, I can't, sir. I, I've been given strict orders by God to not spend the night here, to not eat here, to not drink here. I'm just supposed to say my piece and go home. And this is followed by one of the more bizarre stories in the Old Testament, which I'm not going to read for you, but I will sum up for you. You can read it on your own. But in this story, there was a, a prophet in Israel, in the northern kingdom, who hears about this man from Judah who's come and done this amazing thing and made the altar crack and made the king's hand wither and then be healed. And so this prophet, we assume he's thinking, ah, I want to I talk to a real flesh and blood prophet. And so he goes to meet him and says, come and eat, dine with me, stay in my house. The prophet from Judah says, now I'm under strict orders. I can't stay here. I got to go home. The prophet from Israel lies. And he says, yeah, but the Lord has given me new orders for you. He has said, go ahead and stay with this man. So the prophet from Judah stays with him. And later on, as he leaves, he's killed by a lion. And it's told in such a way, it's obvious this is the judgment of God. This is, this is not just some random lion that attacks somebody on the road. This is something sent by God. And you read that, and I promise you, when you read that, you're going to say, what? What is that about? It doesn't seem to fit in, any, in the narrative in any way. It doesn't, there's no lesson to be learned except, except. The only lesson I can take from that is, if we know God's Word, don't listen to anybody who tells us otherwise. This prophet knew what God said. And just because another guy came along and said, well, I'm a prophet too, and God told me this, that was his mistake. You and I have the Word of God. We don't have to have a prophet tell us what God's will is. It's right there in front. It's in print. So when we hear people say, yes, but I have a new revelation, or yes, but uh, this makes more sense, doesn't it? Or yes, but this is what culture is saying these days. You and I know we have truth in our hands. Don't, don't be dissuaded by any kind of smooth talk. That, I think, is the only lesson I can glean from that story. And someday when we get to heaven and we're, we're able to research things further, we'll probably learn some more details. But that's, I'm just warning you, that story's in there. All right, so we skip to, to, we don't skip, but we move on to chapter 14. At that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam fell sick. So here's the king of Israel. His son is ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself that it be not known that you are the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Now again, they needed more creativity in names because you're, you're confused. You've got the prophet Ahijah and the son Abijah, but we have to manage. I find it interesting, Jeroboam is distraught, as any parent would be, that his son is sick. He doesn't know if he'll get well or not. There are prophets all over Israel. 
But he sends for the prophet from Judah who first told him that he would be king. He trusts in him. Ahijah must be very old by this time. I find it interesting he sends her with with loaves of bread and cakes and a jar of honey, I guess because they didn't have fried chicken back then. That's what you're supposed to give a preacher, right? And it's interesting that he tells his wife to disguise herself. He seriously underestimates the power of a prophet. Now, Ahijah, when she gets there, tells her, your son is going to die. The only good news is he will receive a proper burial, and he is the last male in your family who will do so. They will be be killed on the battlefield. They will be killed in the city. Either way, they'll be eaten by dogs or, or buzzards, but they will not receive a proper burial because of the sins of your husband, Jeroboam. And he predicts that the northern kingdom itself will come to an end, a prophecy that took 200 years to fulfill. So that's just a foretaste of what's going to happen to the kingdom of Israel. Now let's get back to Judah. Verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. So obviously he's picked up on his dad's bad habit of marrying women outside the faith of Israel. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And this becomes kind of the standard format of the rest of this book. Once a king dies... It'll say, and then along came so-and-so, and his parents were so-and-so, and he lived and reigned this long, and it'll either say he was a good king following after the ways of his father David, or he was an evil king, and he did evil. Rehoboam uh, does not turn out well. But one of the things you might notice and might be bothered by is that phrase, they provoked him to jealousy. If you've ever been bothered by the the idea of God being called jealous, just understand there there is a righteous form of jealousy and there's an unrighteous form. We're familiar with the unrighteous form, especially if you've ever been a teenage boy or known a teenage boy, right? And that boy has a girlfriend and he sees her talking to the quarterback of the football team and he's just furious. And he goes out and cuts the guy's tires or he harasses the girl. You know, he does ridiculous stuff. That's the kind of jealousy we think of. Or, or we think of uh, common envy when someone sees something someone else has and they covet it. This is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the jealousy that is that of uh, a, a person with an unfaithful spouse. If you're married to someone who is unfaithful and your heart is hurt, Is that an appropriate response? Absolutely. This is the story of God in the Old Testament. We see it in Hosea when he he has a wife of unfaithfulness and he goes and he buys her back as a sign that says, you can't get rid of me that easily, but it's also a sign. Look what you've done to me. Look how you've humiliated me. Look how you've hurt my heart. It's the jealousy of a parent who has a child that is in with a bad crowd or has gotten involved in drugs or some other awful behavior. And, And... You love your child so much that you hate that which is hurting them. 
That's the jealousy of God. And God hates idolatry, not because He's insecure, but because He knows what it does to us. Because He is our salvation. And when we give that love away to something that can't save, it binds us, it damages us, it warps us, and there are awful consequences to pay. He wants so badly to spare us from that. Now, verse 25 says, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak the king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back into the guard room. So, okay, maybe my favorite movie of all time is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody ever seen it, right? Shishak is actually mentioned in that movie, this Pharaoh of Egypt although incorrectly. In, in the movie, they say, well, Shishak was the one that took the ark away from the temple in Jerusalem, and that's why the Jews lost it, and that's why we've got to find it. Not true, even though it says he took everything. When you read the rest of 1 Kings, Hezekiah comes along centuries later, and he still got the ark of the covenant. So my guess is when Shishak went into the temple and took all the, all the gold and, and jewels, he was probably afraid to go into the Holy of Holies. And so the the Ark of the Covenant stayed there. None of that really matters except to say, in case you're ever watching that movie, you can, you can, you can really impress your friends and say, aha, uh -huh, that's not true. What I want you to see, though, is, again, this is part of the pattern of the book of First and Second Kings. When the people revolt, when the people rebel, when the people stray, God sends some kind of punishment as a means of trying to win them back this is an example, the invasion from Egypt. And for me, one of the most pathetic images in the whole book is those bronze shields. Because if you recall, Solomon had made these solid gold shields, and every time he would go to the temple, his honor guard would come out with those gold shields, and people would just, just be dazzled by it, and they'd say, look how God has blessed us. Look at the glory of our kingdom that God has given us. And don't think people didn't know when Rehoboam would go to the temple and the honor guard would come out with bronze shields. Now, I'm sure bronze shields are impressive. But anybody who remembered the gold shields would say, man, that's kind of the Walmart version of what we used to have. And it's really a picture of, of what we do as, as God's people when we stray. We do things our own way. And then we pretend, well, you know, that's just as good as when I was obeying the Lord. And everybody can look at us and see it's not. God has a way, and His way is right. But there's a way that's right to a man, and it ends in death. So remember that. Just imagine, the tragedy of the story is, imagine that Rehoboam had listened to the words of his father's advisors, and had kept his kingdom together. Or even if he had made the mistake he made, imagine that Jeroboam had, had followed the commands of God and had built an everlasting dynasty. Or even if not that, even if late in his life when that prophet showed up and said, turn or burn, what if he would have repented then? All of these things could have changed the cycle of destruction. 
See, the lesson for us is that God has plans for us, but God's plans are conditional on our obedience and our faithfulness. And a great example of what I'm talking about is if you're married, does God want you to be happy with your spouse? Absolutely. That's God's plan for you is that you would love one another, that you would build up one another, that you would be a blessing to those around you. But that's conditional on your faithfulness and your obedience. If you're not faithful to your spouse or if you're not obedient to God enough to love that person and and put them first, then there's going to be problems and God's plans won't be carried out. And if that relationship ends, it's not going to be God's will. But if it does end, the good news is God says, I still love you. I still have a plan for you. Your failure does not equal my dismissal of you. God doesn't ordain evil, but He never gives up on us. So think about Rehoboam, think about Jeroboam, think about the the missed opportunities there because of a lack of faithfulness, a lack of obedience, and then ask yourself, am I going to be the person who steps forward and breaks the cycle of destruction and disobedience in my family, in my workplace, in my community, in my group of Christian friends? For instance, maybe there's a conflict that you're involved in with somebody else and and you're waiting on them to show some kind of signs of of repentance. And and God says, no, you be the one. You go to them and you apologize with no rationalization, with no no strings attached. Just Just lay it all on the line and say, I care about you. I've hurt you. Let's make things right. Or maybe uh, there's an area of sin in your life. Maybe it's gossiping, or maybe it's dishonesty, or or maybe it's lustful thoughts, or maybe it's anger, or maybe it's greed, or who knows. But there's some area of your life that you've been making excuses for all this time. I know a lot of guys who struggle with anger, and they've got all kinds of excuses. Well, you know, that's this is how my dad was. It runs in the family. Or, well, my wife knew I was this way when she married me. Or, well, you know, I know that I hurt some feelings, but you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, and I don't want to be the kind of person that gets walked over. There's all these explanations and rationalizations. Why not just end that cycle of destruction and go before God in humility and say, I want to change. Teach me patience. Teach me gentleness like yours. Or maybe you're going to be the one who says, I don't see any Christians reaching out to lost people in my circle. I need need for us to remember that the, the Great Commission still stands. One of my favorite stories, I tell it a lot, so I hope you don't get tired of it. Uh, William Carey in in the hundreds of years ago in England was just a poor, poor man, just a cobbler's apprentice. And he got it in his head that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, that was for all time. That wasn't just for the time of the apostles. And here's this Cobbler's apprentice, I mean, low on the social totem pole, and he's going around to all these Baptist churches because Carrie was a Baptist and saying, hey, when are we going to start taking this seriously and send missionaries out? Because at that time, only the Catholics sent out missionaries. And the people just laughed at him and said, oh, that's not, we don't do that. That was Paul and Barnabas. That wasn't today. And one guy had the nerve to tell him, young man, if God shall choose to convert the heathen, he shall do so without consulting you or me. He said those words. And here's this poor, unordained, would-be preacher. And he just won't give up. And he essentially annoyed them into sending him to India. And there was nothing on his side. I mean, he, he'd never been trained in this. His wife didn't want to go. His own partner squandered all their money. I mean, everything was against him. And he changed the world. So 
Let's not forget the ultimate man who broke the cycle of destruction was Jesus because he saw that we were lost and there was only one thing that would save us and that one thing would mean everything for him. He was faithful in spite of the cost. He went all the way. And so if we are his, we will follow his example. We will take initiative to break those cycles of destruction and disobedience and bring deliverance. That's our calling. That's what we do as God's people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that You are the Savior You are, the only one who could save us. Thank the Lord was willing. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would, as we learn these stories, as we're reminded of these stories, that we would see them as cautionary tales, that we would know that we have that same capacity for idolatry, that same capacity for uh, rebelling against You or just ignoring the problems and, and acting like they're not there and then reaping the consequences. Lord, I pray that we would be people of initiative who confront our own sin, who take steps to reconcile, who do what we're called to do, even if no one else follows. Lord, make us those kinds of people. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.